0: You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show.
1: This is The Matt Townsend Show.
0: If we're not wholeheartedly in our relationship, then we probably are always looking for exit strategies.
2: Your guide on
0: the side. I would suggest you forge more character. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. You ever had somebody say, you know, what do you recommend at the restaurant? What do you recommend here? We were talking earlier about how Donald Trump uh, basically ordered for Chris Christie at a dinner. Basically ordered a mistake. You got to try some of these Trump steaks. and So we, I was looking and found this interesting article about, uh, from businessinsider.com about just certain things that you, you shouldn't eat ever. And it comes from a, um, a person that spent over 20 years working in food poisoning lawsuits, Bill Marler put together this article, and he has six foods that he simply will not eat anymore. And um, none of them necessarily are, like, from Chipotle because they keep getting in trouble. Um, check out this list, though. Raw oysters. Just he's not going to do the raw oyster thing. Ben, have you ever had a raw oyster? Oh, he's having one right now. Hmm. It sounds good, Ben. Yeah, they're not bad. You really... Okay, that's not how you eat an oyster. You just kind of more, with the oyster, you just kind of swallow it. You slurp it like that. Yeah. You're chewing it. If you chew it, you're just going to end up chewing it all day. Yeah. Don't eat raw oysters. Marlar says that he has seen more foodborne illnesses linked to shellfish in the past five years than in the two preceding decades. And the reason? The culprit? Warming waters. As the global waters are heating up, it's producing microbial growth, which ends up in the raw oyster that uh, you happen to be slurping down. Uh, no, the second thing you suggest you don't eat don't eat pre-cut or pre-washed fruits and vegetables. Anything that's pre-washed, pre-cut, careful. You got you gotta anything that's been processed pre-cut, pre-washed, take them out, wash them do it again. Don't eat raw sprouts, which I couldn't agree more. (laughs) Why is anybody eating sprouts anyway? Actually, I like sprouts, but sprouts, uh, you know, they come with more than 30 bacterial outbreaks, primarily salmonella and E. E. coli in the past two decades. Sprouts, you know, they've got some problems. Watch out for rare meat, obviously. This seems like a no brainer. You know. If it bleeds it leads. It's so good though. Do you like raw meat?
3: Not raw meat, but rare.
0: Like rare, rare?
3: Pretty rare.
2: Yeah.
0: Do you know what we call that in my neck of the woods? What? You're a carnivore. I'll accept that. (laughs) Watch out. You got you gotta get the heat up 160 degrees to kill the bacteria or you're gonna get E. coli or salmonella. Uncooked eggs, I wouldn't, you know, don't eat them. Don't do the Rocky Balboa thing. Put it in your smoothie. Buh. Buh. It's a no-brainer. It'll kill you, folks. Raw eggs, watch out. Watch out. And watch out for today's trend. There's a big trend about unpasteurized milk and juices. Because many are arguing that pasteurization depletes nutritional value. Yeah. Okay? It also saves your life. It it makes it so your insides don't try to come out on the outside. It keeps your inners on the inners. It's just better for you. There's a reason Louis Pasteur came to this world. One, way, one reason is to make sure that you keep your drink down. So don't drink something that isn't pasteurized, for heaven's sakes. We're talking about restaurants, right? If you want to drink raw milk, you know, right out of the cow at home, you need a life, not to be rude. You need to do something. Hey, here's another one. Don't eat, don't eat rare pearls. Listen to this story. Out of Issaquah, Washington. I used to live there, you know. Did you? Yeah. They have a really – did you ever go to this Italian restaurant? No. It's I, called Montalcino Ristorante Italiano. No,
4: I, I've never been there.
0: I don't know if that's how you say it. But that's... It sounded right. It sounded like a good pronunciation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. A woman bit down on a rare pearl while eating a meal of clams the other day at a restaurant. She's eating like a clam sauce probably. Some clam and linguine meal. Sounds good. At an Italian restaurant, Lindsay has... Did you know Lindsay? Lindsay and Chris, they live up in Issaquah?
2: No. No.
0: Yeah, they live there. I thought you'd know just because you live there. It's a big town. Uh, they were eating at Montalcino Ristorante Italiano, and recently, when she bit into something hard into her entree, Haz says that she wasn't sure what it was, uh, pulled it out, put it in her pocket, and went home to do some research. She took it to a gemologist who determined it was a quahog purple pearl worth about 600 bones. Pretty lucky lady. I mean, sure, it's a molar. Sure, she shattered a molar. But she done found herself a pearl. That's pretty neat. Normally, you'd say, waiter, something crunchy just broke my tooth. But this young lady, smart, smart, she just took it home. She says, and the owner of the Ristorante Montalcino Ristorante, Cindy Nardone, says she's so happy for Has.
3: That's great. She should have kept the pearl and then... Ask for a refund on her meal.
0: Not a bad idea.
3: Just trying to help.
0: Is that how we do it in Issaquah? Yeah. Milk all the money you can. <laughs> she may make it into a necklace, by the way. That is cool. That is great. Something you can't always do when you find something strange in your meal. You know? Hey, I found some hair. <laughs> it's just weird to put hair on a necklace. Make make it into a necklace. No, thanks. I'm going to be in the restroom
2: for a minute. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show.
0: You know, as we've been talking about your career and risk and reward, you know, there's something about passion in what you do, and it makes a huge, huge difference. And so in this Coach's Corner segment, I wanted to talk about a man who, um, who had and has incredible passion in what he does. So I, I was talking earlier in the show about how my son had just graduated from high school. He made it. He finally did it. Eighteen years. Proud of him, uh, my son Tanner. And um, it all began though back in elementary school. We, you know, we had, Tanner's our third child. We had taken had two other children, taken them to kindergarten. It was such an exciting moment. Dropped them off. They were so happy loved going to school, loved going to kindergarten. And we thought Tanner would be exactly the same. We thought he would just eat it up and um, you know, every every other sign said that Tanner would love it. So we took our cute little Tanner uh to kindergarten. I mean, he'd even gone to preschool, nailed it, loved it. Took him to kindergarten. Dropped him off on the first day, actually pulled up on the first day and it went crazy. He was going to have none of that. He was not going to get out of the van. He did not want to do it. Fought us, fought us, fought us. We carried him in, sat down. He wouldn't stop clinging to us. It was all over us. And it was interesting. I mean, it was like, what? What is going on? And then, you know, as a parent, you're like, come on, just, just go, just go. And you're t- basically tearing your child off of your leg and throwing you toward the mean teacher. So we did this every morning for his first week, and then we'd end up staying, and, and we and every time we tried to leave, he'd chase us down and scream and cry and cry and cry, lots of stress, lots of anxiety. We went and met with the school counselor, and the school counselor says, you know, he has a little social anxiety. The big key is you just need to just leave him and go. You just need to get out of here, and we'll take care of it. And then that's hard as a parent, because you're like, oh, I don't want to leave my son, and da da da, da. So finally, they, we just... Created this plan where we were going to pull up in our car and open the door and basically they were going to grab our kid out of the car. Now, who do you have grab the child out of the car? Well, the principal, the principal of this school was David Viciarelli. And he was the greatest man ever. And so when I think of somebody that had passion for his job, he loved these kids. And he would stand at the front of this elementary school, and he just helped us get Tanner out of the car every day basically for a year. And for the first little while, he'd go kicking and screaming, but eventually, really quickly actually, within a week or so, David viscerelli Dr. Visciarelli would open the door. He'd say, hey, Tanner. Tanner would look at him like, ugh. And they'd walk into Dr. Visciarelli's office. Dr. Visciarelli would sit him down. They'd talk for a few minutes. And he'd say, whenever you're ready, and he'd give him a candy. And he'd say, whenever you're ready, we'll go into your class. And then Tanner would say, I'm ready. And then they'd walk into the class. That happened for the rest of the year, basically. Dr. Visciarelli, one man, changed my little boy's life. And I remember when he... Uh, left elementary school. Um, it was like we were so appreciative. Actually, Dr. Vischorelli changed schools, and when he was leaving, we said, "Tanner loves you. You need to always know that." We'll invite you to his graduation. Lo and behold, my son just graduated, and at a at a party for the high school kids, somebody comes up to my son and says, "Are you Tanner Townsend?" And he says, "Yes," and he he says, "I'm." David Visciarelli, Dr. Vicciarelli. and he came up and found my son as an 18-year-old boy who had overcome that anxiety and had graduated and was graduating and is now was really good at, you know, social situations and anxiety and is handling his anxiety and dealing with it, and Dr. David Visciarelli, one person, you know, changed a life immensely. That is the passion we all need in our career where you sure you can change different locations, but Dr. Vicciarelli chased down my son, not only when he was a preschooler, kindergartner, but also he came back to chase down my son as an 18 year old to see full circle what had happened. Folks, when you're in, your, when you're in the, the role you're supposed to be doing, it doesn't matter what the role is. Not everybody's going to be an Oprah. Not everybody's going to be a president of the United States. You might just be a teacher or a principal, but you're changing people's lives, like Dr. Visciarelli changed my son Tanner's life. He changed our entire family's life. For us, he will always be held up as an iconic example of somebody of passion that just is doing what's right. And he is a a fantastic role model. You all have the ability to do that at your own work and your own workplace. When you are doing what you do uniquely well, it doesn't matter what the job is. You're offering something to the rest of the people around us. One of the reasons why so many of us are down and out about our jobs is because we're dealing every day with so many people that are down and frustrated with their jobs. So will you please just take the challenge that Ann Creamer gave you and I'm giving you right now. Let's go find our passion. You don't have to leave everything and go start it. Just go start it casually. Go start finding other ways to figure out what your song is that you need to bring to this great uh, big ball of mud. Dr. Vicerelli, thank you for uh, being a, a wonderful role model for my son and for my family. Uh, truly, you are a hero of our family. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. Man, uh, interesting subject, isn't it? When you talk about morality, uh, the reason we do what we do and why we do it, its and we don't consciously sit there and say, I will now go try to look better by being morally superior to everybody. But we all know somebody that has to tell us when we're doing something wrong, or I had friends growing up in high school that if I I would make a joke that they would laugh at but then they'd be like, "Oh, Matt, shouldn't say that." And it it was hilarious that's why they were laughing. And they're like, "Man, what's wrong with me? Why? Why do I say that? Because I must be such a misfit." Anyway, morality. And one of the things I talk a lot about when I work with my clients is we, we There's a thing called logical force. Okay, so logical force is when we make a decision based on logic, not morality. For example, um, if you have a friend that called you a name or embarrassed you at, a, at an event, it would be logical that you don't talk to her, I guess, for a week. Ignore her. Ben does this all the time with the producers around him. It's very effective. Well... Okay, and um, we're talking against it now. So you wouldn't want to probably argue that it's effective. I just need to put that in. Okay. Sorry. So so you're justified, right? Because you're doing something that is right. If you went and interviewed your friends, nine out of your ten friends, if you had ten friends, Ben, nine out of ten of them would say, yeah, I'd be mad too, and I would ignore Stacy. I'd ignore her because that was totally rude. The problem is even if it's, even if it's logical for you to be mad – even if it's uh, – and you can see this in our political world. Even if it makes good political sense for you to put someone down, for you to destroy someone's career or you know credibility, it, just because it is logical and it, it logically can be justified, it doesn't make it moral, right? Your morals, your moral value system and your logic system – don't always, They don't go together because many times the most moral thing you can do when you see something that's been done wrong, like let's go to the story of the guy that killed the lion. Um, I guess you could gang up and jump in and send it to everyone you know and show how moral you are, or you could just shut your flapper and go make a donation to preserving animals. Right. But no one would know about that. So what's the point? What's the point? Why would I do something that nobody knows about? I guess because it's moral. So when I think of a moral person, I think of a Gandhi, uh, a Buddha, Mother Teresa. These people didn't promote their actions. They just acted.
3: I think you're being naive, Matt. (laughs) (laughs) Is
0: that Are you trying to show you trying to get me mad? So I would. No, I'm trying to be logical. It's your larynx. Um, Got to look after yourself in this world. See again. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Trump. Um, that's a perfect example. That's a perfect example. All of a sudden, it's logical to defend yourself. You feel like you have to defend yourself. Even the guy that was going to rush the stage, he was making a good point. Donald Trump's a bully, so all I wanted to do was just take the – I just wanted to take his his speaker away, his pulpit away. I wanted to get rid of his – Stand. I didn't want to let him have his voice anymore. Logical. Logical. Not so logical when you think of the fact that there was tens of thousands of people there that would have stopped him. Uh, Twelve or so, he said, you know, Secret Service people that could have killed him or killed someone else trying to stop him. Not super logical, but he feels like he has moral authority to do that. I guess one of the problems we run into in our society is we think we have a right And that right means we have no responsibility. We have a right to say what we need to say, to use our voice, to be mad and to take a stand and even charge the stage. We have a right to do this. But there's also a responsibility. Do you know how bad that could have gone? Secret Service that have weapons. This guy could have either been killed or other people harmed or injured or Donald could have had a heart attack. Things could have happened. There's a responsibility that comes along with all of this. So just because you have a moral right or a right, logical right, doesn't mean it's going to be moral and healthy for you. And remember, check your own gut. If Why do you need to post certain things? Look at what you're posting. If you're somebody that is constantly posting political things or constantly having to beat up the latest issue morally, um, why are we doing that? Ask yourself, what does what do I gain by being this type of person? In the end, you're probably not actually improving your moral system. In the end, your moral system is more between you, your God, you and your people around you, you and the followers that respect you and trust you. That's where your moral system creates strength, not in the masses necessarily. Unless you're somebody that is always in the masses uh, – Worth people following you, I'd keep your moral compass fine-tuned to the people around you. Hoping to help you see the good in the world. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back.
2: I want to be a billionaire. So freaking bad. by all of the things I never had.
0: Welcome back, everybody. If you want to be a billionaire, well, our next guest may be able to help you there. There's about 3 million people in the United States who are millionaires or multimillionaires, and about one-third of those millionaires are women. You may ask yourself, how do all these people become so rich? Dr. Jude Miller-Burke had the same question. So she interviewed millionaires and made some interesting discussions. Here to discuss her book, Millionaire Mystique, How Working Women Become Wealthy, and How You Can Too, is Dr. Jude Miller-Burke. Dr. Dr. Jude Miller-Burke, thank you so much for being with us.
5: Thank you, Matt. And I love the intro song.
0: It's a cool song, isn't it? It's a great thing. You've got to love it. And who doesn't, I mean, who wouldn't want to be a millionaire? Is that, so you just decided, I want to go figure out what millionaires are thinking.
5: Yes, I grew up in a rural area of uh, Minnesota, and people were not driving Mercedes or Bentleys, needless to say. And uh, my parents were 18 years old when I got married and did not have the opportunity to go to college And so many years down the road, all of my siblings and myself went to college, got graduate degrees, but we pretty much had to figure it out on our own. And then when I moved to an affluent suburb of Phoenix, Arizona, I met so many transplants, so many very wealthy people who had grown up in poverty, had experienced abuse as kids, but somehow they got from the point where they experienced a lot of childhood adversity to success. And I was really curious, you know. They started telling me their stories over a cup of coffee, a glass of wine, and I became very curious as to how they accomplished that. And I have been in employee assistance counseling for many, many years. I worked at United Health Group. I worked at Honeywell for 10 years. And then I've done executive coaching. So my role has been to help as many people as possible. And I thought writing a book that's a guidebook, a how-to book, Would be the most helpful for people in terms of getting them on the road to success.
0: You make a great point because a lot of us, I mean, if you haven't been raised with money um, or around money or even, you know, in the neighborhood of money. It uh, it it seems like it's kind of a it's an uphill battle. I've always heard it's easier to make money with money, and um, and I guess even the opportunities, the rights, the benefits that come with a family that that's affluent. Talk to us about uh, your your process. So you you sent out. Um, Uh, a form to millionaires that you knew, and then I guess you you got more and more names and started sending out more of these. I I guess so far, how many uh, millionaires have you reviewed or how many have you investigated and talked about or talked to?
5: I have worked with Dr. Mark Attridge um, out of Minneapolis who does consulting and he's a social science researcher. And we've done several waves of research. Um, Nicholas Brealey, my publisher for the last book, wanted it about women in particular. But we have over 310 men and women we've studied, half of whom are multimillionaires or millionaires. Wow. And these are all self-made people. Interestingly enough, 75% of them were from low-income poverty to middle class. Wow. Around 25% of the people that were from a higher-income level. So that's why I think this story is so inspirational. Yeah. Um, The family backgrounds were interesting in that many of their parents' parents in the 1950s, 1960s owned their own businesses. So their parents owned the local grocery store or drugstore. They learned at an early age around the dinner table that being an entrepreneur is okay, and they learned some of the basics for business.
0: That's great. So one of the things that was handed down then apparently – was in fact this just happened recently I was talking to one of my clients and um, her husband struggles in school but is really entrepreneurial and I thought, well man maybe maybe school's not as not his forte. So if if it's important for him to get the degree, get the degree, but know that he'll probably do better in something he he's really more interested in. But it was it was interesting to see the response of the wife was terrified because she had never been raised around a family of entrepreneurs. She she wanted him to just go get a degree, get a job and just kind of stick in the job for the next 30 years instead of having that entrepreneurial spirit.
5: Right, but being an entrepreneur uh, really has its roots in different personality types. Yeah. Now, surprisingly, though, with this group, they were very highly educated, and it may have been because we used a snowball sampling. So we d- designed this scientific questionnaire, and uh, over 60% of the people responded. And part of that is because it was the network of, you know, my own network yeah. and also Dr. Mark Attrich's network. But this was a highly educated group, and also surprisingly, uh, the parents in the 90s, 1950s and 60s also had college degrees, hmm. six times more often. So even though these kids who eventually became successful did not grow up with wealth, they grew up with parents who were really demonstrating the value of education, perseverance, conscientiousness, and hard work. Because as you know, when you have your own business, you oh. pretty much work 24-7. Right.
0: And yeah, it doesn't go away. Um, so, so one of the things you found out uh, that the parents were educated, that the, their children as well were educated, and then they ended up becoming millionaires. They also had parents that owned businesses, but the principles were more education, perseverance, I guess, hard work. What else? What other, what other uh, learnings came out of your, the
5: research? Well, no one had a straight linear path. Everyone, the men and the women, had detours and failures um, at a very high rate, 50%, 70% for detours. Um, They had been fired. They had been laid off. They experienced illnesses. They relocated. They took time off to have children. And the men actually had more failures, but the women had more detours primarily due to the childbearing and childrearing Mm. and also taking care of other ill family members. Um, Some of the success factors that uh, emerged, uh, and again, we used a lot of standardized measures. So these are measures on self-esteem, on work engagement, on social influence that have been used over and over again in social science research. So we compared our group of very successful people to the traditional norms. Um, So as I mentioned, many of them owned businesses. They were friendly, but not necessarily personal at work. And the women and the men were willing to argue a point of closure, which actually is very difficult for many people. But, you know, as you move up in the management chain and and even owning your own businesses um, or are partners in the clinic, you have to be willing to mediate and deal with the conflict at work. And so this was a group of people, including the women, who had learned how to argue a point of closure and not take it personally.
0: Wow, that's... That's an interesting little insight, isn't it? they, so they yes, were it They were adept and skilled in communication, conflict resolution.
5: Right. And one of the things they said was most important to become successful and to be a great leader is good written and verbal communication skills, which I think, especially today with this, the social media focus, it's so important to remember that. Man. Um, see, Th- they also recommended becoming highly prepared and an expert in your field. So way back when a professor had told me, you would be a great psychologist, I think I was all of maybe 18 years old, and I was taking psychology courses, and we were doing exercises and role plays, and I have a passion for my field. I love helping people. I read psychology books all the time. No one else is reading what I'm reading in my social group, Um, but I think it's important to pick something that you love and become highly prepared and then become an expert in your field
0: and and that's something that is in our circle of influence that's something anyone can do right i Very mean it's th- 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 everything you're talking about these aren't you know this isn't like you need to raise funding of ten million dollars it's you've got to be friendly and per- but not personal necessarily i mean willing to argue to closure. Good written and verbal communication skills, highly prepared in your field. I mean, these are doable.
5: They are very doable. And the people I studied were ordinary people that did extraordinary things. And all of their stories are in my book. Along with, at the end of each chapter, are very specific how-to bullet points. So very specific advice on what kind of work style to develop. What is the best leadership style to motivate the people that you supervise? Um, how do you overcome prejudice and discrimination? Um, Some of the other success factors that were recommended were um, self-awareness, self-management. And I have a new wave of research that we have just completed, and I'm writing a new book that will be coming out next spring about rewriting your story to be successful at work. One of the things that emerged is that 40% of the people we studied either experienced um, poverty childhood adversity, witnessed domestic violence, or had an alcoholic, uh, chemically dependent family member.
0: What percentage was that?
5: 40%. Wow. So, yeah. when you think about the extreme experiences these kids had, they grow up, 20 years later, they're in the workplace. So, of course, that adversity is affecting their work style. And in both books, I write about how to know what your own triggers are, how to acknowledge them, and how to I'll learn to manage your triggers. Let me give you a quick example. Yeah, please. Uh, Say someone grew up in a family where there's abuse, which, you know, 50 years ago, that was, I don't know, maybe it's more common now, but it was fairly common then, you know, spare the rod, spare the child. Well, then people go into work, and they bring their fears and their insecurities into work, and it affects their relationships. But women need men at work, and men need women. Building social capital With both sexes is so important for success
2: Mm. and to
5: be authentic and to be comfortable with yourself uh, to network and to find mentors and it doesn't have to be like one mentor over 20 years but it could be maybe an uncle or an aunt that you respect or one of your parents or someone at work or someone in a professional network um, but to have someone that you you can go to and discuss problems you're experiencing at work is really critical.
0: I love it. Um, and just very basic principles is what we're discussing. Again, we're speaking with Dr. Jude Miller-Burke and about her book, Millionaire Mystique, How Working Women Become Wealthy, and How You Can Too. We'll take a break, come back, continue the discussion on uh, some of the basic principles of um, becoming a millionaire. And it's interesting isn't it we for many we think it's so out of reach except when you listen to the data that we're talking about with our guest um it seems pretty common yet uh for so many just not in their not in their grasp they feel stick with us folks helping you see the good in the world we'll be right back this is the matt townsend show Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, and we are speaking with Dr. Jude Miller-Burke, author of um, the book Millionaire Mystique, How Working Women Become Wealthy and How You Can Too, uh, the work of uh, researching and evaluating 300-plus millionaires and gathering the data about their path to becoming a millionaire. And uh, Dr. Jude Miller-Burke is walking us through some of the key learnings. And, man, if there's anything I'm learning Dr. Uh, Miller-Burke, it's, hey, there's hope.
5: There's a lot of hope, and that's part of why I wrote the book, is to provide inspiration to people. And as I mentioned earlier, my parents were 18 years old and had five children pretty quickly and did not have the opportunity to go to college. But I learned immense from them about being conscientious and owning a business and persistence and overcoming obstacles. And... I wanted to write this guidebook, this how-to book, to help more people become successful.
0: You know what? And it, it, some people think the, the pursuit of the millionaire dream is, you know, it's kind of selfish, it's self-absorbed, it's it's shallow. But the reality is, if you love what you're doing and you want to impact people's lives, money becomes just a symbol of it, doesn't it?
5: Right. Money is just a symbol. It's really about having an overarching sense of purpose, and I have a whole chapter in the book about what it does for your mental health and your physical health to give back, because there are demonstrated research results on you can have um, a better physical health and mental health by giving back to other people, and the title's catchy, you know, the feminine mystique, Betty Friedan, you know, her book you know, in the 1960s. Um, But, no, the book is not about just making money. For instance, I have a whole chapter on resilience because resilience is key to becoming successful and have uh, points about not taking no for an answer, using no as motivation, you know, choosing about what you are going to be stressed about, um, depending less on the opinions of others, which is so hard for most of us how to increase your sense of control by not letting others define you. And so there's a whole chapter on resilience and strengthening yourself. So whatever business or work situation you're in, you have more resources to draw upon.
0: What did you find out about their personal lives? Did they – many would say they have to give up, you know, your personal life to go be a success at this level financially. Did they have strong family lives? Did they have – strong marriages, and and were they succeeding there as well?
5: Um, Actually, many of the people did have children and were married, Um, and I think it's a given that when you work in corporate America at the very high levels, you are forced more to give up um, some of your freedoms, you know, after being in corporate America for 20 years, different kinds of companies, I think, um, it's safe for me to say that you know when you have your own business, you have more flexibility, which is I think why so many of these people were able to balance work and family, even though it was continued to be challenging. But if you own your own business, you can take off a little bit earlier to go see a soccer game, um, you know one of your kids, or if you need to take some specialized training to become more of an expert in your field it's easier to do that
0: did um you, In one of your articles that I read uh, that was in Business Insider, you, you said that there was one trait that they all shared um, a trait of, of conscientiousness. Talk about that for a minute with us.
5: Well, this group as a whole is very conscientious, whether that be in their personal life or in their work life. Um, they follow through, they're dependable, they're organized. So let's take their own finances, for instance, seeing as, you know, the title of the book is focused on millionaires. Um, They don't live outside their means. They're they're not a group that puts a new car every year on their credit card, you know, or makes payments. Hmm. They earn the money first, and then they spend the money. They live beneath their means. So often, you wouldn't even know that these people are millionaires. Uh, because they have college funds for their kids. So in their work life, people can depend on them. People go to them for stability, for their calmness. And in their personal life, they lead in much the same way. So it's not someone who every January says, oh, I'm going to get a handle on my finances. This is a group that day in and day out has a savings plan. They don't um, fall prey to the princess syndrome, which is uh, one of the syndromes that one of the financial experts that I interview in the book talks about. Which is, I need this, I need that, I have to have this. You know, they're a group that's learned that you don't have to buy everything that you want, and what you see on TV isn't necessarily reality. It's TV.
0: Yeah, it, it so it's interesting because that that takes so much discipline, and it's not, it doesn't necessarily jive with the. Um, Kind of the expectation you know we think these are people that are driving the nicest cars and you know turning the cars over regularly but these, instead it sounds like these are people that buy a car keep a car run the car into the ground almost
5: and that is true of course there are pockets like you know suburbs of la or suburbs of phoenix you know and other parts right. of the country where you know people are driving very fancy cars but overall um they're a frugal group, and they're a wise group in terms of how they spend their money. They have a savings plan. They have a retirement plan. They invest wisely. They're more protective of their money. Um, And you had mentioned how they feel about their lives earlier in the interview. Mm -hmm. And when we measured this group against the norms, it was interesting. They did have a greater life satisfaction, but not that much higher because they still were going home at night and. The women who I studied, who were the self-made millionaires, were still absorbing that second shift. That's right. So they had help, of course. Um, I think if you have two people working full time, you you know have to have some kind of help with you know the the yard or the home or you know watching the kids until you can get home from work. Um, but they still were absorbing that second shift. And so when I speak to groups of women, what I tell them to be aware of is that one of the most important decisions you can make, and this is true for men also, is who you decide to marry.
2: Hmm.
5: You know, is that person going to be supportive of your career? Who's going to get up in the middle of the night when the child is sick? Who's going to take off work the next day when the child needs to go to the doctor if you choose to have children? And to have these discussions up front because you can either spend your life having someone supportive and pulling with you and supporting you in your career or you can have someone that's working against you. I also really encourage people to think wisely about prenuptial agreements, and, you know, if you're going to have kids, to really spend time thinking through those prenuptial agreements, Um, because so often women tend to leave their full-time careers, and, you know, if you leave your career, uh, and 20 years later, and you were making even $50,000, that's a lot of loss. So to be mindful of your own Financial future, even if you are a part of a couple,
0: because there there is, like you were saying earlier, there's a disparity in um, you know in home chore, you know, differences and who's doing what at home, and and even caregiving to adult to our parents, uh, and women take a disproportionate amount of uh, of responsibility for that stuff, and so meanwhile we're trying to become a millionaire, but women also are carrying this other burden of being the mom, being the caregiver, the provider, the cleaner, the... I mean, you really got to make sure you're equally yoked with another person that is pulling the same direction.
5: (laughs) Well put. That's great. Um, Yes, I think that's so important. And we talked earlier about how their lifestyle, you know, they had a greater life satisfaction. They also uh, reported a greater um, health Um, but interestingly enough, um, as a group, their self-esteem was higher, but the men's self-esteem was higher than the women's in our self-made millionaire group.
2: Really? So
0: as
5: a group, overall, their self-esteem was higher than the normal population. Okay,
0: interesting, but the men still had a higher self-esteem.
5: Right.
2: Interesting.
5: only about 5% of the men said they were going home at night and absorbing the second shift. I really loved Hmm. how honest the men were in our survey in, um you know just the written comments but also when i interviewed them because many of the men had run large companies and they were very forthcoming in saying that you know they had someone at home that was doing the second shift and managing the sick family members Um, the men also when asked said it was more difficult for women to become professionally and financially successful Hmm. eighty percent of the men said that and the men also said that it was more difficult for a woman to be a leader Because she was expected to act like a man, she had to balance out her competency skills with also being, um, you know, somewhat feminine, and it was just a tightrope to walk. And so the men were very forthcoming about the extra challenges for the women.
0: That's interesting, too, um, because statistically, a third then, based on the research, a third of the millionaires are women, and I'm assuming that number is just only increasing now. Yes so that's true but it's yep. but the the other two-thirds of the men understand that the women that have are succeeding they're doing it it's a lot harder for them than it was even for the men
5: right and they you know they were men who had run big companies and so they had hired women and supervised mm-hmm. women and had you know women as peers and so they saw them over many years and saw the challenges and the struggles Man,
0: interesting stuff as we wrap it up um what what would you say is, is the one thing that all of us need to remember if we want to kind of start directing our life toward, you know, financial success like that, that maybe the millionaire goal?
5: Well, and may I also say just overall personal success. Yeah. Um, I think conscientiousness is the number one key, and also to make yourself as resilient as possible, you know, to figure out what makes you happy, what strengthens you, whether it's You know, running marathons or prayer or dancing or being with your kids. Find out what nurtures your soul, build your resilience, and then it will be much easier on a day-to-day basis to become conscientious and follow through and dependable.
0: Love it. Uh, Dr. Jude Miller-Burke, thank you so much for your insights and uh, your your hope that you give us to, to go create a healthier life.
5: Thank you, Matt. And the book is The Millionaire Mystique, and it's on Amazon.
0: You bet. And go to judemillerburk.com another great place to look for it. Millionaire Mystique, how working women become wealthy and how you can too. We'll take a break, folks. When we come back, we're going to play a little game. As you know, we like the games. It's the, going to be the acronym game. We're going to try to figure out some acronyms. Stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, uh, if you're if you're a texter, if you are a, on Twitter, then you have to learn shorthand, right? All of the different little shorthand acronyms. I don't know what we call them. But uh, joining us right now, Sadie Nelson is going to help us figure out—we're going to do a game— but the game is about shorthand. She's going to give me, I guess, a, an acronym, and I've got to tell you what it means.
6: Is that the idea? Yeah, that's the idea. Are you ready for this? <laughs> I'm so excited. All right. I have not seen
0: any of these, but I am incredibly literate uh, in the Twitter sphere.
6: We'll see about that. Okay. Okay, here we go. Ready? Yes. Number one I K R. You what? I K R. Yeah. I
0: kill randomly.
6: Wow. Boy. That was that was so close. That was no, no, it's, I know, right? I know you kill randomly, right? <laughs> who says?
0: Who says IKR?
6: I thought you were in the Twitter sphere.
0: Yeah, I thought. I always thought IKR meant I kill randomly. Oh, that's why I thought people were weird. Wow,
6: that's okay. okay
0: these are hard. <laughs> keep going.
6: Okay, um, AKA,
0: uh, also known as. Yep, that was that easy.
6: That's old Good school. Job. That is very old school. Yeah. Most people should know that.
0: That predates the typewriter.
6: Yes, it does. <laughs> yes okay brb you BRB, this one.
0: be right back yep those are easy come on give me a hard one idk
6: okay all right here we go i think this one you'll get pretty what? easily too tmi
0: too much information
6: yeah you got that these are easy okay i don't know i don't think you're gonna get this next I'll one i'll get it i
0: get everything okay what i k i know
6: you do know everything wow
0: i k well, i know impressed. what i mean k was no than <laughs> the last one
6: okay um I didn't know this one. Okay. So good luck. AFK. Oh, AFK.
0: America flirts.
6: <laughs> Kardashians.
0: Kardashian league.
6: No, no, no. It's uh, away from the keyboard. Away from keyboard. Get away.
0: So why oh she so, so if you're playing a game, you say, "Oh, I've got away uh, uh, AFK." No, away from K keyboard.
6: No, that's that's so, what Terry tells me. So he I'm says, not in the key- away from keyboard. Oh,
0: get away from the keyboard. Yeah, get a life. I just say get a life. G A L.
6: All right. Okay. Next one. Yes. R O T F L.
0: Rolling on the floor, laughing.
6: Oh, oh that's good. Also known
0: as Raffle.
6: Yes. Ruffle, 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 ruffle. <laughs>
0: that's my favorite one.
6: That's good. Yeah. Okay, I'm impressed. Thank you. I'm um, JK.
0: Just kidding.
6: Yep. these are so easy? You okay? Wait. Give right me right. a hard one. Okay. Brb. Be right back. No, no. This is a new one. Oh brb. No, I'm just kidding. Ready oh, for that it. one? <laughs> darn it. Darn it. And once the only one left. Uh-oh. Yolo. Yo. Okay. Oh, sorry. I should say it as an acronym. Acronym. Y O L O.
0: YOLO. I know this. (laughs) You should know this Um,
3: I say it all the time. It's not like
0: FOMO. YOLO. You only love otters. So close. You do say that all the time. Yeah, you do. What does YOLO mean, Benjamin? You only live once.
6: Usually they say like hashtag YOLO. (laughs) Only live once. Got to get out there. That's a dumb one. No,
0: okay. I like You Only Love Otters. <laughs> That's a better one. Man, thanks, Sadie. Yeah, you're welcome. See, that was, I, you know, I feel hip. I only missed like a third of them. And I'm not even, I'm not even in my youth anymore. I'm in my early middle age.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Late middle age. Early middle age. <laughs> Sheesh. We'll take a break. We'll come back one more hour of the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us, folks. We'll be right back. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show.
1: This is The Matt Townsend Show.
0: I would suggest you forge more character.
6: Your
2: guide
1: on the side.
0: Uh, it's, It's these interruptions that are there to teach you the lessons we need to live. This is
2: The Matt Townsend Show.
5: Dr. Matt Townsend. On BYU Radio.
0: BYU Radio. You know those millennials. They're just so lazy. As I look at Ben yawning through the middle of my show. They're not lazy, folks. They were misunderstood. Misunderstood, totally. Yep. And they were basically like monsters created to fail. That's what I was thinking, too. So let me give you some other coaching tools. And this isn't just for millennials. This would be for some some ideas for how you can coach other people when they bring you their problem. Right? Because it's easy You know, you may have a friend that constantly comes and brings you all of their issues and you need to fix this for me. Um, But if you're going to coach people, and this would work great with millennials, you know, in coaching them on their own uh, issues as well. But um, I'm going to give you just five basic keys, okay, as we go through this coaching corner. Uh, The first key is to know that the answers, any answer, or I call them a hook, a hook might be something that keeps somebody stuck. All of their answers, all of their hooks are in them, not you. So when somebody comes to ask me a um, you know a question, but it's involving them or their life or their uh, experience in the world, when it's about them, the answers are in them, not me. And you got to realize that as a coach. And there's a lot of value to knowing that because if I understand the problems are in them, the issues are in them, then honestly, then I can uh, kind of make it more about them. I also don't have to be offended if they use or take my advice or not. Um, I also can know that if I give a solution that doesn't work, it's because I probably didn't unhook the right issue in them. So I want you to be thinking about somebody that comes up to you, asks you a lot of questions, wants your advice, maybe somebody that doesn't seem to take it a lot, uh, or, or the people that maybe are around you, wanting insight, but don't necessarily ask for it. Know that their issues, their answers are in them, and I'm convinced that uh, that those issues are in them. And I I want them, I want them to be responsible for the fact that this is your world. A lot of times, I'll ask somebody a question, and they're like, "I don't know, I don't know the answer to that." Well, you must. I don't know is your fast answer that you're just telling me as a coach. But you're the only person that knows why you do what you do, right? I mean, I can guess why you do it. I can surmise. But you're the one with all of the information. You're the one with all the data. So make sure when you coach somebody that the answers are inside of them, even if it's just coaching them to kick a ball in a goal. And if if they have the inability to do it, then that hook is stopping them. But that hook is inside of them. And the job of a really good coach is to get inside that person and help that person find out what their answers are. Um, one reason that that's important, too, is because in motivation theory, it would say that unless this person, uh, unless the answers are coming from this person, they're less likely to be motivated to actually do anything about it anyway. So turn it back on them. And... Uh, let me show you how we do that. One way to do it is to use questions, right, to turn on some lights. So like, let's say a mother came in and, you know, I don't – my son, we we were going to move him to a new school. I'm pretty sure it's – I mean it's an important thing. I'm not sure he's going to like it, but I, I want to move him to this new school. I think it's better for him. And um, they might just right out of the chute say, what do you think? Well, I don't know. I don't know your son. I don't know everything about what's going on here, so be careful to not just jump on that answer. Well, yeah, I would totally move him. I was moved to a new school, and I was his same age, and I turned out great. Um, instead, use some questions, right? So you know, just use some questions. Like, you know, what I don't, I don't know what to do about moving your son yet, but you know, it sounds like you're really considering it. Um, but before I answer this, can I ask a few questions? Like, so what are your goals for your son and his situation? And try to help them by just asking the question, what are your goals? It allows them to have to go evaluate their goals. Or, uh, you know, what, what do you perceive the problems might be with moving him to this area, to this new school? What does your heart tell you about this decision? What does your mind tell you? You know, and which of those two do you trust more? Which answer do you trust more? Another question you could just simply ask is, why are you asking someone else's advice on this? Why are you not just making the decision yourself? But push on them. Right? Because and push with questions and let these questions not be to trap them, not be to beat them up, not even just so you know how to answer this person. Ask the questions so that this person has to explore what they are doing, right? If the the issue is in them, then ask the questions that help them explore it. The more information we gather here, it's also going to do two things. It's going to give me more data, but it's probably going to lower their emotion about this decision. Anytime somebody brings me a big you know, bundle of emotion, I usually like to get them talking and sharing their feelings about the emotion. So first step, understand their answers and hooks are in, themse- in them, not me. Second is use questions to turn the lights on. My goal is just to get information. Once I can figure out what their goals are with their son and what's the history of the situation and what are they feeling right now about it and why are you asking me, why aren't you asking someone else and what does your gut tell you, a lot of those might, they might just answer it themselves, right? Another thing I like to do is as they're talking is I reflect back what I hear him saying. I'll reflect back. So it sounds like you really like to have your child try another school, but you're afraid he'll lose friends if he goes to the new school. Is that what you're saying? And I just hold it up back to what they were to them so that they have to look at what they're saying. And the way I do that is I just basically paraphrase what they just told me, and then I say, so is that what you're saying? And then they have to agree or disagree. Well, yeah, that's – well, and it's, it's not just like that. I also – I don't want to feel like I'm too demanding that I'm pushing my son this way. Now, the more they talk, I love it because the more information it gives me about them, but it also allows me to maybe look a little bit deeper at what their motives are, what's driving them, what their concerns are. If this mother, for example, keeps saying, I just don't want to make the decision for him. I just – I want I, – I don't want to make a mistake and I feel like I might be pushing him too hard, but then I'd go talk more about that. Man, it sounds like you feel like you're applying a lot of pressure about this decision. Tell me more about that and then let them explore that issue. Does that make sense? So as they're sharing their issues, the issues usually never the real issue we're discussing. This isn't about school. This is about this mother's concern about her son. She's concerned and she wants to make a change for her son. And she's also concerned that the change will create other problems, like he will lose his friends or she's just being too demanding. So if you hold it up, don't agree with it, don't disagree with it, don't argue it. I don't even give other advice. I just say, I just kind of let them kind of sift through what they're thinking about. And by not taking a position, then they don't have to, like, you know, retract into their position, and then we don't have to debate about it. Keep it very open so we can keep this issue moving until we find out what's going on. Then another rule I like to use is I point out their inconsistencies. So it sounds like you're worried about your son and, you know, and his grades, and yet you also don't want to feel like you're making the decision for your son. Is that, what you're, is that what you're feeling? this That's a little bit of an inconsistency, right? You want him to move on and you're concerned it's not a great idea. Yeah. Point out the inconsistencies. What I find many times, it's the inconsistencies in our thinking that come out in a conversation. And if we can hold it up, not call him on it. Oh, it sounds like this is what's really going on. You don't need to be the pop psychologist. Just I'm noticing that you – You really feel like you're pushing your kid too hard and you also really feel strongly that he needs to move on. Talk to me about that and then if I can get them to be honest a little bit more about the inconsistency, that's where I see a lot of truth come out. When I'm coaching couples, when I'm working with people, Um, it's it's pretty interesting stuff and so – Point out those inconsistencies. And then last and certainly not least, be cautious about giving advice, right? Be cautious about giving advice. And one reason I say that is because um, people take your advice, right? So if you give advice, people are going to take it. It's one of the weirdest things I learned being a, kind of a radio TV personality is, People actually take your advice. Be super careful offering it. The other reason I want you to be super careful offering advice is because um, they also need people to blame. So if they don't like your advice or if your advice backfires, you're the one that gave it. So they will hold you accountable to it, right? Five basic, easy coaching steps. Know your answers and hooks are in the people you're talking to, not you. Use questions to turn on some lights. Reflect back what you hear them saying. Point out their inconsistencies, cautiously, of course. And be careful giving advice, folks. Be careful. I've seen people advise a divorce because their friend gave them that advice. Be careful the advice you give anybody, um, especially if you haven't done the other steps before it. You're
2: listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show.
0: You know, as we've been talking about your career and risk and reward, you know, there's something about passion in what you do, and it makes a huge, huge difference. And so in this Coach's Corner segment, I wanted to talk about a man who um, who had and has incredible passion in what he does. So I was talking earlier in the show about how my son had just graduated from high school. He made it. He finally did it. 18 years Proud of him, uh, my son Tanner, and um, it all began though back in elementary school. We, you know, we had, Tanner's our third child. We had taken had two other children, taken them to kindergarten. It was such an exciting moment. Dropped them off; they were so happy. Loved going to school. Loved going to kindergarten. And we thought Tanner would be exactly the same. We thought he would just eat it up, and um, you know, every every other sign said that Tanner would love it. So we took our cute little Tanner uh, to kindergarten. I mean, he'd even gone to preschool, nailed it, loved it, took him to kindergarten, dropped him off on the first day, actually pulled up on the first day, and it went crazy. He was going to have none of that. He was not going to get out of the van. He did not want to do it. Fought us, fought us, fought us. We carried him in, sat down. He wouldn't stop clinging to us, it was all over us. And it was interesting. I mean, it was like, what, what is going on? And then, you know, as a parent, you're like, come on, just just go, just go. And you're basically tearing your child off of your leg and throwing you toward the mean teacher. So we did this every morning for his first week. And then we'd end up staying, And, and we and every time we tried to leave, he'd chase us down and scream and cry and cry and cry, lots of stress, lots of anxiety. We went and met with the school counselor, and the school counselor says, you know, he has a little social anxiety. The big key is you just need to just leave him and go. You just need to get out of here, and we'll take care of it. And then that's hard as a parent because you're like, oh, I don't want to leave my son, and da-da-da-da. So finally, we just created this plan where we were going to pull up in our car and open the door, and basically they were going to grab our kid. out of the car. Now who do you have grab the child out of the car? Well, the principal. The principal of this school was David Viscerelli. And he was the greatest man ever. And so when I think of somebody that had passion for his job, he loved these kids. And he would stand at the front of this elementary school and he just helped us get Tanner out of the car every day, basically for a year. And for the first little while he'd go kicking and screaming, but eventually, really quickly actually, within a week or so David Visciarelli, Dr. Vicciarelli would open the door. He'd say, hey, Tanner. Tanner would look at him like, ugh. And they'd walk into Dr. Vicciarelli's office. Dr. Visciarelli would sit him down. They'd talk for a few minutes. And he'd say, whenever you're ready, and he'd give him a candy. And he'd say, whenever you're ready, we'll go into your class. And then Tanner would say, I'm ready. And then they'd walk into the class. That happened for the rest of the year, basically. Dr. Vicciarelli, one man, changed my little boy's life. And I remember when he uh, left elementary school, um, it was like we were so appreciative. Actually, Dr. Vicciarelli changed schools. And when he was leaving, we said, Tanner loves you. You need to always know that. We'll invite you to his graduation. Lo and behold, my son just graduated. And at a, at a party for the high school kids— somebody comes up to my son and says are you Tanner Townsend and he says yes and he he says i'm david visarelli dr visarelli and he came up and found my son as an 18 year old boy who had overcome that anxiety and had graduated and was graduating and is now was really good at you know social situations and anxiety and is handling his anxiety and dealing with it And Dr. David Visciarelli, one person, you know, changed a life immensely. That is the passion we all need in our career, where you, sure, you can change different locations, but Dr. Vicciarelli chased down my son, not only when he was a preschooler kindergartner, but also he came back to chase down my son as an 18-year-old to see full circle what had happened. Folks, when you're in your when you're in the the role you're supposed to be doing, it doesn't matter what the role is. Not everybody's going to be an Oprah. Not everybody's going to be a president of the United States. You might just be a teacher or a principal, but you're changing people's lives, like Dr. Vischarelli changed my son Tanner's life. He changed our entire family's life. For us, he will always be held up as an iconic example of somebody of passion that just is doing what's right. And he is a a fantastic role model. You all have the ability to do that at your own work and your own workplace. When you are doing what you do uniquely well, it doesn't matter what the job is. You're offering something to the rest of the people around us. One of the reasons why so many of us are down and out about our jobs is because we're dealing every day with so many people that are down and frustrated with their jobs. So will you please just take the challenge that Ann Creamer gave you and I'm giving you right now. Let's go find our passion. You don't have to leave everything and go start it. Just go start it casually. Go start finding other ways to figure out what your song is that you need to bring to this great uh, big ball of mud. Dr. Viciarelli, thank you for uh, being a a wonderful role model for my son and for my family. Uh, Truly, you are a hero of our family. This is The Matt Townsend Show trying to broaden your mind as we uh, help you find the good in the world we'll be right back stick with us welcome back friends to the matt townsend show Our society has made a lot of conscious efforts to make it possible for women to contribute in the workplace and raise children. Things like maternity leave, flex schedules have made it uh, more possible for women to have the best of both worlds. But are those same opportunities and understanding offered to men? Here to discuss her article, Fathers Also Want to Have It All, is Dr. Gail Kaufman. She's a sociology professor at Davidson College and uh, is also the author of the book, Super Dads, How Fathers Balance Work and Family in the 21st Century. Dr. Gail Kaufman, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show.
1: Oh, hi, Matt. Thanks for having me.
0: You bet. Thanks for being on here and researching this topic. I mean, it's it's true. We're trying to make it more and more uh, possible for a woman to be in the workplace, to be able to uh, also take care of her family, um, but we haven't, it seems like, focused that same attention on the men. Talk about some of the research and, and learnings you've had as far as fathers and wanting to have it all.
1: Right. Well, I think what we're seeing is a lot of the similar patterns that happened for women, right? When women were first entering the workforce in large numbers, there was a lot of attention to how they were going to be able to do it all. And it turned out that Women were spending a lot of time at work, and they didn't really get to cut back their time at home. So they still had what was called what Arlie Hochschild called the second shift. Like they did all their work, their paid work, and then they went home and they did the housework and right. childcare. And so we've been trying to figure out, okay, how to make how do we make that paid work easier for women to combine with the role that they've occupied and taking care of their families and so now we're at this point where with men it's sort of we can see opposite. it's similar but there are opposite patterns in terms of men have been in the workplace and now they're adding these caregiving roles right So right. in different ways i mean they they've been involved in different ways throughout history but more recently we see this Really large attention to what they can do as caregivers, how they can be involved dads. So, in the, in some sense, it's saying, okay, well, now you want to, you know, be more, uh, be more involved fathers and spend more time at home, but we're not really taking away their work responsibilities, right? Their paid work. Right. And so. They're now facing the same kind of second shift where they are doing. They still have responsibility, the financial responsibility, and added onto this is all the responsibilities that they're adding at home.
0: Because for years, it, we men were almost laughed at in their caregiving roles. We we were kind of always the butt of the joke uh, for right. every sitcom. And and now it seems like, in fact, you cite a really interesting study, the National Study on Changing Workforce, that says almost half of fathers in heterosexual relationships say they share caregiving responsibilities equally or take right. on a greater share of caregiving than their partner. So we're finally, I guess, stepping up in a way, uh, in a more equal way.
1: Yeah, sure. And, and, so men uh, particularly you know fathers are doing a lot more at home it's still not equal right um, of course uh, mothers are still doing more than fathers but fathers have really um, they've gone from spending about um, two and a half hours per week on child care in the 70s to seven hours um, and so which works and this is on a typical work day,
2: right,
1: So yeah. or over the week, over work week, so if we think about that in terms of how much more might be spent on any given day, that's a large increase, especially if it's done after spending, you know, however many hours, say, eight hours at work.
0: Yeah. We've talked about work-life policies on the show before um, where... You know, people get paid time leave or paid leave to go have their child and to get, uh, you know, to have some family time. And talk about the United States. We're still, we're still so behind, it seems like, in even offering the, this, this benefit to our employees um, compared to the rest of the world.
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, so the U.S. is one of two countries. The only other countries, Papua New Guinea, who, that don't have uh, paid uh, some kind of paid parental leave. Um, now, certainly more countries have paid maternity leave and paid paternity leave, and some countries combine and have um, you know a more gender-neutral parental leave. Um, but the U.S. definitely stands out, um, certainly uh, in the world, but uh, particularly when we compare it to other countries that we like to compare to in terms of other measures of well-being. Um, so it's, uh, I think <laughs> it's definitely a step that needs to be taken.
0: Why are we so far behind? It seems like, you know, we'd be leading in this area.
1: Yeah, well, there's definitely a sense of... Um, there, there's been a, a very much a sense of individualization in the U.S., and a lot of that leads to thinking about, okay, families are private, you know, and um, so whatever you need to do with your family, you do that, right? Right. And so everyone's sort of left on their own to figure it out. Um, This also goes hand in hand with what a term called the ideal worker, where this is developed in the workplace, where the notion is um, when the workplace came about, it was often men in the workplace women um, staying at home, and so the idea was, okay, the ideal worker can just focus and give all their attention to the workplace, and they don't really need to worry about other things, Um, and that idea has really (laughs) been hard to sort of get rid of, right, so even as we have women in large numbers and no one's questioning and and having um, two parents um, in the workplace or a single parent who is working, the, these are not unusual. Um, but yet, these ideas about, okay, your work life is your work life, and family, we, you know, that doesn't, you know, that has nothing to do with work, and you just have to figure it out on your own. I think that still exists to a large extent. Hmm.
0: Yeah, you, uh, you cite a statistic, uh, 43% of fathers, 41% of mothers uh, still face feel like they feel face a stigma when seeking greater flexibility in the workplace. There's, I guess, that's you're not the ideal worker if you're not then there at work when they need you, how they want you, you know, without and never bringing your family into this.
1: Exactly. Yeah. So the the, the sense is that if you um, show some vulnerability really in this way that it could question your commitment. Um, and I think that the, the numbers seem similar for uh, men and women that you cite there, but in fact there are, there are some studies that suggest that the effects may be even greater on men in terms of those who actually ask for um, parental leave or use flex time um, because there's you know these notions about gender and about what men that men are still providers and that men are dedicated and so if there if there are any questions about this dedication then that that affects people's coworkers or supervisors
0: yeah um, does does the i mean I, as i look at this it's I don't know, we, we've we've struggled with trying to figure out a way to get – to create equality, to get women in the workplace, I guess those especially that really wanted to go create a profession and yet still balance a family life. Um, and, and so what's driving men to want to be more with their kids than 30 or 40 years ago? Is it are, – are men evolving? Are we like – are we picking up kind of more of a maternal role or is it just the mere fact that the economics has changed us?
1: Yeah, I think it's um, probably a combination, right because you definitely have that need um, as you know economic um, economic changes have really um, led to this need for two parents to be in the workforce, um, to a large extent, and so um, when you have both parents working, then it sort of uh, becomes more uh, necessary for both to also be involved in that caregiving, Um, and I think, to a large extent, when fathers become involved, it makes them want to become involved even more, right? Yeah. You know, once you're spending time with your child um, or children, you know, you get to uh, experience all the great benefits of that time and, and the, the sense of accomplishments that come from and, and just the joy yeah. of raising children, right? So um, so fathers who who spend time with their children want to spend more time. It's, you know, they see how... Um, this is a really important thing, not just for them, but for their children. They see how their children respond to them. And it exactly.
0: seems like we become better at it, right? We become more comfortable. Exactly. And and when you're better at something, you, yeah, you don't avoid it. You don't run from it. You just take it on. Um powerful. Let's, Gail, let's take a break. We're speaking with Dr. Gail Kaufman, author of the book, Super Dads, How Fathers Balance Work and Family in the 21st Century. And we're speaking about her article, Fathers Also Want to Have It All, According to the Studies. Um, we'll come to the discussion, folks. Dads are important, and when we come back, we'll get a little deeper into that. What impact does a father have on the family and uh and the child rearing let's let's get into that as well this is the matt townsend show stick with us helping you love stronger and lead healthier happier lives we'll be right back Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. On the phone with us is Dr. Gail Kaufman. She is the author of the book Super Dads, How Fathers Balance Work and Family in the 21st Century. And uh, we are talking about an article, Fathers Also Want to Have It All, uh, that uh, she wrote. Dr. Kaufman, thank you again so much for being with us.
1: Oh, thank you.
0: When you talk about dads, I mean... It's one thing, now we're, it seems like we're catching on. We're, we're playing kind of a, a stronger partnering role in, in the parenting of our children. Um, what impact does a father have on, on, the chi- on their children?
1: Right. So, yeah, there have been a, there's been a lot of research in terms of looking at father involvement and child development. And the general, I mean, there's strong evidence that it's a positive impact, right, in terms of all sorts of factors. If we look at anything from academic uh, or cognitive development to more emotional um, development to behavioral kinds of outcomes, that um, having a father who is more present and more involved will help children, right, right. in these areas. Um, so, you know, a lot of it, it it's, it's hard be- to say because the research is still um, new in terms of whether it's simply fathers or whether it's two parents yeah. say, and, and whether it could be um, because the early evidence on two mothers or two fathers seems to be pretty positive as well. So it may be that it's just a second parent is really good for children.
0: Double-teaming. Yeah, yeah. You get, a, you get a double team. I mean, it's like we, we have six children and we have a grandchild that is eight months old that is going to stay the weekend with us. And we are terrified because it's like, um, are we ready to do this again? Okay. Do we remember what to do? And it's interesting how, I mean, it's such an important role that we play in our lives as a father or as a mother. And then some of it's natural we've spent we've done it for years 20 30 years basically what um but then our jobs are still pulling at us we've got to work we've got to make the money talk about uh what we can maybe do in our lives to to try to create a better balance
1: right so yeah i mean um, what you're talking about in terms of trying to remember and thinking hopefully it'll be like riding a bicycle, right? Right, right. But, but a lot of that is true in the sense of, um, as I was saying before, when, when fathers spend time with their children, then they um, then they gain confidence and they, they learn, you know, the skills that mothers also learn. It's, it's You know, most of this is not... Sort of you don't wake up knowing how to be a parent, but you, you learn how to do that. And that's why I think that really the first step is having paid parental leave, right? Because right. having that time initially with children to care for them, um, that really benefits the child. But it also um, really builds skills for the parents to continue to be good parents, right, throughout um, throughout their child's Lives, Um, so so that's the first step, and then bolstering that with other kinds of workplace supports, right? That are so important to really changing how we think about um, work and acknowledging that most people have families, and and if it's not um, child, you know, young children, then eventually it may be grandchildren, or it may be parents, or it may be others that people. You know, have responsibilities for so um, really making it making workplaces more amenable to doing both. Right? It, it it seems sort of like we can we can focus. But obviously, there are things that individuals may try to do to to make their um, experiences better, and I think that. That, you know that's important as well. But um, as a sociologist, I always like to look to the larger kind yeah. of structures that are in place that, that make it more difficult for people to, to, to combine work and family.
0: California took a big step in, you know, I guess in the groundbreaking paid family leave program. Um, for example, you cited in your article 90 percent of fathers in Nordic countries end up taking leave. Yes. and yet there's only one state in the u.s I guess that have a paid family leave program in place mm-hmm. California
1: um, yeah so California does um, New Jersey Providence and the latest is New York hmm. um, but the, the Providence uh, was last year so it's it's just going into you know it's just having its uh, impact and New York is Yet to come. So, and
0: those are all um, paid family leaves. There's family right. leaves. There's there's acts where you can go take a leave, but you're not paid.
1: Right. The national we do have a national policy called the Family and Medical Leave Act, which was passed in 1993, and that does offer up to um, 12 weeks of unpaid leave. So, the problem with that is, well, <laughs> the biggest problem obviously is that it's unpaid, and a lot of people. Can't afford to take unpaid leave right um it it also doesn't cover everyone because of restrictions in terms of how big the work the workplace needs to be and how long you have to have work there Um, so in fact we know that um, about 12% of US workers in the private sector um, have access to paid family leave that's through their companies and so um, without these kinds of um, broader policies, it's really you know, am I lucky enough to work for for an employer that offers this? Um, but getting back to yeah, getting back to California is a good example. That's that was the first state, um, and it's been in place for over 10 years now, and so we can get a sense of how successful the program has been. Um, and it has worked to increase um, fathers taking uh, parental leave, and it has had limited um, it, or no negative impact on the employers that uh, of those taking leave, um, as as much as the research has shown. So it's been a, you know, as far as we can see, a win-win situation. Um, I'm I'm not sure about getting to. Uh, sort of a Nordic model. I mean, that, yeah. that is really <laughs> sort of a gold standard for, for people studying um, parental leave. Um, but it, those companies uh, or those countries have been really successful because they have focused on not just um, thinking about parental leave as something that will get women back into the workplace, but something that will get fathers to be more involved at home, yeah. um, that's been equally important in those policies. And So, um, a case like Sweden, where you know there there's um, three months set aside for each parent, so mm-hmm. the parent gets three months that you know you you use it. They call it use it or lose it, or sometimes it's called the daddy quota. So um, it's sort of a way of making sure. That fathers will use leave, um, and then there's additional leave that can be shared. Um, but this is really bolstered. Um, it, it's it's really affected how people think about it, right? So if you go, you know, to Sweden, you you see that it's not really a big deal. I mean, of course, you're going to take, you know, parental leave, and fathers are out with their strollers with their Mm. Um, children, and um, it's not something that seems strange, right? So it's it's getting to a point where, and I think in the U.S., I mean, it's not so strange to see fathers with children or, you know, fathers, that the way I start my book is noticing how many fathers are at the bus stop, right? Mm -hmm. There are a lot of fathers... That, that go and take their children to the bus stop in the morning. And so they may be in their suits, but they're, they're there, right? So um, we're definitely seeing changes, and, and it, it doesn't seem unusual that fathers would be um, with their children. But it's just um, making that easier and uh, extending it.
0: And the way, I guess the way it works in California is there's just a small payroll tax of 0.9%, That is paid, I guess, year round by the company, and then as as the employees need it, they then take the money from those funds to to pay for that.
1: Right. So it's um, right. the The system is it's um, a a small tax, and so it's sort of um, similar to to like disability, where people are paying into it and um it's a you know it's not a very large part of um, it, it's it's a, a fairly small amount when you're looking at the overall scheme and this way you know every anyone who um, needs it can then take it and it does address um, not just children, not just newborn but caring for um, family members hmm. as well so yeah. um, because this becomes you know at different points in Your life cycle, yeah, yeah. (laughs) There, there may be different needs, right? But, um,
0: but yeah. Well, and especially with an aging population, that will become even more and more valuable. I guess, too, in the end, you can, you know, the government could provide the means and the way to do this. um, But in the end, if you still have that ideal worker paradigm going on back at work, taking the leave may, you may be too afraid to do it anyway because you just don't want to lose your position.
1: Right, right. I think it needs to become standard, something that, um, something that you know, the employers um, will, if, if you um, say you're having a child, then, okay, here, here are your benefits. And the assumption is that you will use it, right, unless otherwise... Um, right less other, right? So instead of having it be, okay, you have to come to me and tell me and ask for it, um, something that would be a little more proactive, I think, would be helpful. Because in um, some of the more recent research that I'm doing that, that hasn't been published yet, but in interviewing fathers in California, um, several of them have spoken about that their um, their employers don't Fully know, especially in smaller companies, they might not. Which California doesn't have a limit on the um, the size of the company, so that's a little different. But a lot of the employers didn't, you know, fully know um, what the policy was, and it was fathers who actively sought out that information. Mm. And said, okay, here's what I can do. And they brought it to their employers. And in a lot of cases, the employers are like, oh, okay, well, that's, you know, got to do that. We didn't know that. <laughs> it, okay, great. It worked. Yeah. But but you'd think, you know, for something like this, to be <laughs> even more effective, it would be great for the employers to take
0: that. Right, that. bring that to you. Yeah, right. that's right. powerful. Well, Dr. Gail Kaufman, we appreciate your great work. Thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Oh, thanks for having
0: me on. You bet. And again, her book is Super Dads, How Fathers Balance Work and Family in the 21st Century. Let's figure out a way where we can all be better at what uh, at our most important roles in this world, um, being a parent, a family member. We'll take a break, come back, continue the discussion. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends. So let's say you get three months off. Uh, As you're having a baby, you get to go be a part of that, take care of your child, your other children perhaps, maybe an ailing grandparent or a parent. You might actually also have a little extra time, you know, a little free time maybe to go just breathe, I don't know, make some ice cream if you're Ben. Or a gigantic street-legal shopping cart. How cool would that be? I don't know. I'm not into really fast shopping carts. But uh, even even the express lane is too slow for this souped-up shopping cart. The Shopper Chopper, they're calling it. It's the world's only street-legal, drivable shopping cart. Street legal, drivable shopping cart. The super-sized shopping cart is 9 feet tall, 12 feet long, and can hold 6 people and 146 normal-sized grocery bags, which is, I mean, that's a lot of shopping. That's, that would take you to Costco and back twice. The, the, the shopper chopper can reach 50 miles an hour. Here it is revving up. Uh, we've got video of it right here. The only problem is that it can't go inside a grocery store. It can't. So you got to park it at the front gate. You're not going in the store. But that's good because you, you probably ought not go 50 miles an hour in the grocery store. I mean, I remember when I took Ben to the store and put him in the little seat in the front of the cart. You remember this, Ben?
4: Yeah, I don't know why they don't make him big enough for...
0: Yeah, do you remember how you, you only got one leg in? Yeah. That was weird. That was kind of
4: kind of straddling the bar right there.
3: Do you remember was, how
0: hard it was for me to just lift you up and get you in there? <laughs> do you remember that? Yeah, it, those were the days. Just raised my little pup. And um that was like 2 months ago? Yeah, that was uh, yeah. I think it was it was June. June last month. Yeah. Oh, last month. It was okay, last yeah. Month. Yeah, so we went to go get some supplies. Up to
2: Daisies, right? Yeah, <laughs> do you remember?
0: Up to Daisies. <laughs> Good times. Anyway, the cart is being used for a promotional purpose outside of stores now. And, uh, you know, it's a drag racing cart. Do you know how many – you know, my like my wife would love that because you could shop so much faster. You just stick your arm out and just push stuff into the cart. And it holds like 147 – 146 normal-sized grocery bags plus just the torque. It would take you – Yeah. Know,
4: just the power it gives you. The power. The, the power feeling it gives of power.
0: You. Got a lot loaded for you for next hour. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We will be right back.
3: Good morning. Welcome to Screen Cleaning. It's Friday and we've got Cole Wissinger here along with me, Jeff Simpson. We're here each and every Friday to give you the very best in entertainment. And that means entertainment news, that means movies, that means TV, it means plays, it means
4: any if it has anything to do with entertainment,
3: we're going to talk about it. Today and- it
4: even involves the snacks you eat while you're watching your entertainment.
3: That's right, Cole. And boy, oh boy, have we got an amazing show for you today. And today is a day of celebration, really, because, Cole, as what are you we brought to my attention, today, well, this weekend, is the 30th anniversary of the release of Die Hard with Bruce Happy Willis. Happy
4: birthday! <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Was that like the club? Yeah, or the, okay. the noisemaker thingamajig. No. Oh. Oh, like the... Ah,
3: that thing. Now that we're on the same page. Uh, you know, it's interesting. I was I was reading up on Die Hard because I was getting ready for another show that we're going to be doing soon about uh, songs that are made famous by movies. And so I was thinking about Ode to Joy. And I read that, you know, people were not excited about Bruce Willis starring in this film. In fact, I, when the trailer came out... There, the guy that wrote this article said that people in the movie theater, when they saw the trailer and saw Bruce Willis in the trailer, were booing. Can you imagine people booing Die Hard? Aww. But that's what they were doing because Bruce Willis was coming off of this. Really, I, I've never seen it, but it's it's. I guess it's kind of a romantic comedy show called Moonlighting. He and Sybil Shepherd were in this show together, and so people were used to seeing him. You know, maybe as a a detective, but in a romantic comedy setting. So if I
4: can project forward, it's like when they cast Ben Affleck to be the new Batman. We saw that that turned out amazingly, but Affleck is coming off of a lot of just romantic comedies, kind of playing the big dumb guy.
3: Right. Or like when Michael Keaton was cast as Batman. Mm -hmm. You know, people were only used to seeing him as a comedian. This is Mr. Mom is going to be Batman. So... It's no secret, though, that Die Hard has done quite well over the years. And, you know, many would argue has aged quite well, even though it came out way in the 80s. And it's always fun to go back and watch that and see the gas prices are like 80 cents a gallon or something. But we celebrate the 30th anniversary of Die Hard, which is important not just because it's its anniversary, But we are going to be talking about Die Hard in a way on the show later today when we talk about another film that has just been released today. Correct. So, Cole, another exciting piece of news, which is kind of long overdue and it's not all that surprising. But here it is nonetheless. Billy D. Williams... Speaking of Batman, Billy D. Williams was Harvey Dent in the 1989 Batman. Or
4: one of the Harvey Dents right. back
3: then, <laughs> did not go on to be Two Face. His loss, and maybe ours as well. Mm-hmm. Although it was interesting to see Tommy Lee Jones go way over the top as Two Face in Batman Forever. Uh, Billy D. Williams, known for better known for his role in the Star Wars films, uh, Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi, as Lando Calrissian will be reprising his
4: role in Star Wars Episode Nine. Cole, are you excited for that? I am. And I'm excited to see how he comes off the tales of Donald Glover's amazing Lando Calrissian performance in Solo is Star Wars Story. Oh, my
3: goodness. (laughs) Watching Donald Glover as Lando in Solo was pretty entertaining because you could see him channeling Billy Dee Williams, uh, kind of doing his best Billy Dee Williams impersonation. You know, I— I think part of the reason it's not all that surprising. Maybe I wonder though: had they not killed off all the characters from the original saga, if we would need him by and, now, or if Carrie Fisher, or if she didn't die in real life, I wonder if the filmmakers would have brought him back at all. But now Billy D. Williams is kind of our one of our few remaining ties to the original saga. And so I don't know if they're doing this for nostalgia's sake or if there's a really strong story and he just so <laughs> happens to be a part of that story. Well, and
4: I want to see how they introduce him now, too, because now we are sans all of our old characters unless they've filmed sure. in, on the very sly some scene between him and Carrie Fisher before she passed. We don't get a chance to see him interact with any of the people from his trilogy. So, do we just get to throw him in with Finn and Poe and Ray and see sure. what happens? Like, that's missing out on some of the gravitas of bringing back your character.
3: You know, they did a decent job at creating CGI versions of Carrie Fisher and Peter Cushing in Rogue One. That's so it is possible, it
4: serviceable. is serviceable.
3: CGI renditions I, 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 said <laughs> I said decent I said decent Okay. I thought the Peter Cushing uh, CGI was better than the Carrie Fisher and CGI and I agree with you um, so they could do something with her in episode 9 they could easily do something with Mark Hamill because as we know from Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi, that wasn't the last we had seen of Alec Guinness after he dies. Jedi's in tend the to first come one. back
4: tinged blue in their ghosty form.
3: Yoda was in episode mm-hmm. eight, so we could certainly see Mark Hamill in episode nine. Uh, I don't think there's any hope that Harrison Ford is
4: coming back. And that's the problem. So, sure, you could get Mark Hamill or Carrie Fisher to interact with Billy D. Williams, but his relationship was with Han. Sure. And Han is dead. I mean, I guess there's Chewie. Aw, there is
3: Chewie. And maybe, you know, Emilia Clarke from Game of Thrones who was in Solo. We never know what happens to her. And we may never know, actually, because Solo did not make enough money to warrant another sequel, which is a a fantastic segue into the next point that you wanted to bring up, Cole, which has to do with box office and sequels.
4: Correct. Never let it be said that I will pass up an opportunity to brag about being right when I am right. I have to play a little (laughs) clip of something that happened just on last week's show so that we can see how it went. Is it going to be? Is it going to continue the streak of Marvel
3: films dominating, like just making, like literally printing money? Cole is convinced it's not going to do that well. Isn't
0: that illegal?
3: He didn't say. Well, no, he did say bomb in Marvel. You know, in Marvel's eyes, it'll bomb.
4: This was hmm. during your conversation with Sports Nation that we tend to do every week with Jason and Jerem talking about Ant Man and the Wasp, the sequel to Ant Man. And how I was skeptical that it would perform at the box office.
3: Okay, but I think I think you could be right. Uh, you being right is arguable.
4: Okay, well I will explain <laughs> to you the numbers that you can't argue.
3: Okay, let's hear them.
4: Ant Man two debuted in their opening weekend at seventy five million dollars, which is the lowest total. Uh, Since Thor that was released in 2011 or Captain America, the first Avenger also in 2011, back before we had such hype behind the Marvel train. Now, wait a minute. How much did Doctor Strange make, though? More than Ant-Man and the Wasp. Really? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. At $85 million. It is also the lowest sequel to any Marvel movie. In today's age of franchises and the power behind knowing you have a good product, now you are building on it. Sequels always make more money. This is the lowest performing sequel in the Marvel Universe.
3: Okay, so what I'm hearing from you is that it's a relative bomb.
4: And most importantly for 2018, the opening weekends for Black Panther and Infinity War were both over $200 million. huge. Ant-Man and the Wasp, just a couple months later... Less than $100 So That's a bomb. If we look at the projections, (laughs) if we look at what the Marvel Universe is doing, how they keep getting more and more money the more years and more movies we get out of them, and then to have Ant-Man and the Wasp be a, a cliff that the line graph falls off of.
3: So that's one way to look at it. So compared to the other Marvel movies, sure, it could be considered a bomb or it could just be considered the lowest grossing of the sequels, right? However... Basically, the way it works is a film needs to make about double its budget in order for it to be considered profitable. Profitable, right? Mm-hmm. So that's really all we need to see. And it's not like, oh, this bombed, so we're not going to have Ant Man in any more of the sequels, or we're not going to do another Ant Man movie. Um, because I think most people will just go see it so that they can be in the know and be caught up on the overall Because you story. have to
4: watch every episode to right?
3: get the overall season arc. Which, not to spoil anything, but with the exception of a post-credit scene, you really don't need to have seen some of the other films. That's one of the things that I really like about the Ant-Man movies is that, for the most part, they they are standalone films kind of like the first Guardians of the Galaxy film, right? I ugh, I that is one of my biggest beefs is that I wanted Guardians of the Galaxy to be in its to be its own entity to not meet up with the Avengers, but I guess If you read the
4: comics, that's not the way it all plays out. But I don't read the comics. Everyone's got to come together for the big events. The one thing we can look. Sure, there probably will be more Ant-Man movies. And yes, they will definitely be in the future Avengers as they go forward. But will it mean a change of direction for the director or for the way they present the story? Because the lowest performing two movies prior to this were Thor and Thor the Dark World. And we all saw how they entirely flipped the character on its head, Hmm. came with a new direction with thor 3 so because ant-man and ant-man 2 have now performed even worse than thor and thor 2 will we see an entirely different ant-man 3 Mm. it is an important do they need to reassess of course we'll get the movies these aren't those kind of bombs these are still marvel movies but will they have to reassess how they are presenting their character
3: I don't doubt we'll be talking more about Ant Man. In fact, I'm pretty sure, I think you said you're going to be bringing up Ant Man later on in the conversation here on screen cleaning. We are going to take a break, but when we return, we will bring up Ant Man again, among other things, as well as Die Hard, because and sex. we are going to be talking about ripoffs. And I'm not going to give you any more clues other than that. Food, Ant-Man, Die Hard, rip-offs, when we return, here on Screen Clean. Yo, VIP, let's kick it, which I think is a nice way to start out a song, because it's saying, like, you're a very important person, um, let's begin. Let's begin. <laughs> um, and then the next lyric is, uh, all right, stop. Which is strange, because we literally just started. (laughs) That was Adam Scott appearing on Conan O'Brien's show, or Conan, kind of breaking down the lyrics to Vanilla Ice's hit song, Ice, Ice, Baby. And uh, we are actually going to revisit that song here in a bit. And I'm going to let Cole explain why we'll be revisiting
4: that song. Today we'll be talking a little bit about ripoffs, and we're going to start by talking about some music because that Ice Ice Baby riff is not the only time where certain artists have reused um, elements, beats, rhythms from other songs. And those other songs artists uh, recognized it and got a little bit mad. Like you said, we're going to revisit Ice Ice Baby, but the reason we're talking about this now is because in the news recently, the Marvin Gaye estate has sued Ed Sheeran. They believe that his thinking out loud maybe copied, maybe was inspired by, certainly infringed upon in their minds, a Marvin Gaye song called Let's Get It On. And I'll let you be the judge. Darling, I will be loving you
2: till we 17 I've been really trying baby trying to hold back this feeling for so long and I'm Ooh. thinking about
4: Honey
2: now.
3: So, how old is that Ed Sheeran song? Because it sounds like it's been around for a while. A couple years. Okay.
4: Yeah. But Marvin Gaye's has been around for a while. According to the lawsuit, Ed Sheeran has copied some melody, rhythms, harmonies, drums, bassline, backing chorus, tempo, syncopation, and looping. Hmm. So uh, what does that translate into? He copied the song. Uh, It translates into, (laughs) they hope, $100 million. Whew! That is... They uh... won't get that much. But, as you heard, there are similarities, especially in that beat. You can just... You can get into that groove and they just groove right one into the other. You know,
3: another fun thing to do is to take the theme song for the X-Files and do, the
4: themes,
3: and put that together with the theme song from Downton Abbey. Which I don't know. You've got to try it. And uh, OK, we need to we need to make a distinction between ripping off and sampling. Okay, sampling is this thing, especially in music, where you can take a portion from somebody else's song and incorporate it into your music, but usually there is permission involved in sampling. Right, you get written consent from the original artist to use that music within your own music. Right, uh, and it's called getting sample clearance from the artist. Something that Vanilla Ice did not do when he released Ice Ice Baby. Now, originally, nobody from Queen, David Bowie didn't complain, but then something happened. Uh, The song became quite the hit. And then they started paying attention and realized, you know, we really ought to get paid for this. So, he ended up settling out of court with David Bowie and Queen. I don't think we need to worry about Vanilla Ice, even though this song was released decades ago. I think he's still riding quite the wave, financial wave, in terms of, uh, you know, he's, he's doing all right. We don't yeah. need to worry about him. Yeah. But I think we, we ought to listen to Vanilla Ice explain that, you know, he didn't rip off this song.
4: Ding ding ding, digging, ding 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 ding. Ding 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 ding. That's the way theirs goes. Ours goes. Ding 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 digga, ding ding ding. Ding 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 ding. That little bitty change. It's not the same.
3: And that little bitty change is actually called an anacrusis. I was not familiar with that.
4: A word you learned from Vanilla Ice
3: or Wikipedia. Yeah. Uh, anacrusis. That little that little bitty change was not enough. For him to get away with ripping off Under Pressure from Queen and David Bowie.
4: And there are so many other songs that do the same kind of thing. We've talked about two sets of them and later on in the show, I'm going to test your musical acumen, Jeffrey, to see if you are able to differentiate which was the original and which is the copy. But before we get to that, Here on Screen Cleaning, we try not to just talk about one kind of pop culture per show, but many kinds. Uh, And I would like to now delve into the movie ripoffs realm. Sometimes you'll see where the plot, or the main setting, or even the moral of the story are eerily similar between different movies. In the early 1990s, Robin Williams... In 1992, Robin Williams was having a heck of a year. He was the voice of the genie in Aladdin... And in the same year, he was the voice of a little bat in a movie called Fern Gully. (laughs) a Save the Rainforest movie where a little fairy shrinks down a big bad human that was coming to tear down the rainforest, and he learns a powerful lesson about the value of nature. Those
3: (laughs) humans are the worst.
4: They are, aren't they? But he learns his lesson by the end, and a giant smog cloud voiced by Tim Curry becomes the real bad guy. The humans were just the pawns in his plot to take over the rainforest. I
3: had no idea that Tim Curry voiced... A smog cloud
4: in the same movie where Robin Williams is voicing a bat in a movie where we're really learning to save the rainforest.
3: Robin Williams, as great as he was, you can take him or leave him, you know, because he's done so many films. But when you say Tim Curry as a smog cloud, you've got me sold.
4: So you could go back and watch that one, where the indigenous person comes in contact with this outsider who's trying to take over their land. They go on many adventures, including frolicking through light-up forests and trying to save a sacred tree before learning the lesson of the value of nature at the end. Or you could watch 1995's Pocahontas. Oh, yes. From Disney, which is a little bit of a bigger studio name than what Ferngelly came out of, mm-hmm. where pocahontas is very not at all even loosely based on the story of actual <laughs> Pocahontas. But it is a nice story about this indigenous lady who has an outsider human that wants to take over her land. And there is a sacred tree and some light up flowers,
3: I believe, who was voiced by Linda Hunt, yes. Academy
4: Award winner. But if that's not your style either, you could get a bigger budget yet again and watch James Cameron's interplanetary visual masterpiece that the box office tells us just about everyone watched back in 2009, Avatar, where an indigenous lady comes in contact with a hard-headed human male that has to learn the value of nature and getting along with people, they run through forests that light up when they touch it, and they try to save a sacred tree. Well, I mean, I, I guess you could say that there are no original ideas left in Hollywood. But more so than some other ones. These have just very specific things that they're lifting from one another. Yeah, there's, I mean, Dances with Wolves is also kind of a colonialization story. There, there's these kind of stories that tell us, be kind to the land around you. But these three specifically are really similar. I
3: take back what I said then. I Maybe it's not a question of there are no original ideas left in Hollywood. Maybe we as humans are just not getting the message. And so they keep feeling like they've got to hammer the point to the ground and get us to treat the environment a little better. Exactly. Hmm. We still need to save the rainforests. You've given me something to chew on, Cole. My pick... And this is very timely because this film, uh, it comes out today, actually, and you should go see it because Dwayne the Rock Johnson is in it. And who doesn't like them some Dwayne the Rock Johnson, right? So I remember the first time I saw the trailer for Skyscraper, and I remember immediately thinking, as did many other people, this looks an awful lot like Die Hard. The 80s action movie starring Bruce Willis, where he goes to his wife's Christmas party in this giant skyscraper near L.A. And it's taken over by terrorists who ruin a perfectly good Christmas party. In this film, Dwayne The Rock Johnson – oh, I should mention that uh, Bruce Willis's wife is in the building. So he's not only trying to rescue all of the employees – And thwart the terrorists, but he's trying to rescue his wife, right? Makes it personal. Yes. So in Skyscraper, he is like this ex-Marine type of guy that loses a leg. And so now he goes into like safety consulting or something like that, right? And it's this state-of-the-art building called the Pearl. And uh, his family is given an entire floor of the building to stay there while he's checking everything for safety, you know, checking all the boxes, making sure that they can move forward with these plans, right? Well, this building is taken over by terrorists. And as I mentioned, his family is in the building. So not only is he trying to save everybody from the terrorists, but he's trying to save his family. And if you want some good chuckles, you should go online and see the comments on social media that people have shared, poking fun at how... how <laughs> How much this movie is the same as Die Hard? One of them was pretty funny. There was a guy picturing them in a pitch meeting and somebody bringing up the concern, Are we worried this movie is too much like Die Hard? And somebody answering, We'll give him a prosthetic leg. Are we worried this will make too much money? You read it too then. That's awesome. Yes. So I think the filmmakers are not they're not trying to claim that this is a completely original idea i think they said that there are you know parts of die hard that that could be seen the same as this movie
4: however I, there are other die, similar diehardy films as sure. well. White House Down and Olympus Has Fallen. Right, both came out the same year. Both do diehard in the White House. But I also think
3: that this movie is not going to pretend to be something that it's not. I think it it means to be a B movie. So I feel like it's fully embracing its diehardness. And the reason I think that is, I I opened up my, or I turned on my computer today, and I saw a new poster for Skyscraper which copies the original poster from Die Hard, where you have Bruce Willis. Half of his face is seen. The other half, where the other half of his face should be, is the skyscraper. And they did the same thing for the film Skyscraper with Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Go see it. I'm sure it's going to be not only a big hit, but a lot of fun.
4: Another timely pick that I have about a movie that may or may not have come out just last week and that we did talk about then, uh, there's a Marvel hero by the name of Mm Ant-Man that is a ripoff himself. Now, for those that just watch the movies, they might not realize it, but if you're a fan of the DC television universe, you're familiar with a character named The Atom, who has a very similar power of putting on a suit and shrinking So Ray Palmer was introduced by DC Comics in 1961 as the Atom. And the very next year, as if they weren't even pretending that they weren't ripping it off, Marvel Comics debuted Ant-Man with the same exact shrink-down-and-do-things powers. So
3: wait a minute. You're telling me that Marvel does not have an original idea? Yes. Yes. Wow!
4: Now there are plenty of instances where it went the other way. There are similar characters across the two sure. different comic book brands. This one, though, them being one year apart, them being a very specific shrinking down kind of power, and the timeliness of Ant Man coming out last week and people still going to see it in the theaters. Just thought I would educate the people that Ant Man might not be the mo- even though that we all love Paul Rudd and it's funny and it's a Boy, good movie. Boy, Dewey, yeah, it's, it's not the most original.
3: Okay. Well, um, I'm going to go in a little bit of a different direction here with my last pick. So there are plenty of entities, plenty of uh, movie franchises, plenty of songs that could be accused of ripping off other possibly greater songs or movies. But mine is actually a product. And before I tell you about it, I want to tell you a story. When I was 11 years old, I was going home from Scouts and one of the few times that I, ro- that I used a skateboard, I was crossing the street. It was at night. It was busy. I waited for the pedestrian sign like a good little pedestrian should, and I was crossing the, crossing the street on my skateboard. Lo and behold, a car was turning left at the same time, plowed me over. I rolled up onto the windshield They freaked out, slammed on the brakes, and I went tumbling off the windshield. Luckily, I got right up, and I was. uh, they called an ambulance. Uh, Luckily, they didn't just do a hit and run. And I remember sitting in the back of the ambulance thinking, I'm fine. I'm fine. I need to get home. I really wanted to get home because I was going to miss an episode of Home Improvement. Who? I remember going to school the next day, and all I had— was this big purple bruise on my leg. And so I remember telling kids what happened, telling my peers, oh, yeah, I was skateboarding home last night. I got plowed over by this car. Nobody believed me. Because in their minds, if I had been plowed over by this car. You'd be in a body cast. I would be, yes, I would be much more hurt than just a big purple bruise. So then the uh, their form of taunting was in, uh, oh, Jeff got hit by – he ran into a parked car. <laughs> and I was furious. It Which, was so frustrating. Apparently,
4: given your skateboarding skills at the time, might not have been out of the question. It probably – and I don't think I rode a
3: skateboard after that. So, yeah, good point, Cole. It probably could have happened. But it didn't. Uh-huh. So imagine how frustrating it must have been for – a little company called Sunshine, they created a a cookie called Hydrox. Okay, this was 1908. So way back in the early 1900s. And imagine how frustrating it was for them when in 1912, a slightly, well, a much bigger company that ultimately became Nabisco uh, decided to come out with their own Chocolate sandwich cookie called the Oreo. You which may have, I heard, have heard of it. Have heard. Okay, you probably even tasted one, mm-hmm. if you can remember that. They had much deeper pockets, and they were able to make their cookie way outlast Hydrox, which unfortunately uh was removed from shelves after the company was sold off to various parties. It, it has changed hands over the years. Uh, Kellogg owned it for a while. But there was another company in 2014. Leaf Brands registered the Hydrox trademark, which, as I mentioned, had been abandoned by Kellogg's a, a few years back. Leaf Brands began production of their version of Hydrox on September 4th, 2015 at the company's facility in Vernon, California. This is important information, Cole. I'm riveted. In 2017, the recipe was changed to remove artificial flavors that had been used for the previous 50 years, and the company obtained non-GMO certification, which you probably don't know is not that easy to do. There's a lot of paperwork involved, a lot of money that you have to drop to get that non-GMO certification. Anyway, apparently – and this would be interesting to do a taste test somewhere later on. uh, But apparently the Hydrox is a darker chocolate cookie. The cream is a less sweet cream. And apparently it is crunchier, so it's not going to get as soggy as an Oreo will in milk. Imagine how – How frustrating it was for the Hydrox cookie, because in their marketing, when Oreo came out, they had to be a little more aggressive. They had to start saying the original chocolate sandwich cookie. But Oreo took off so much to the point where people thought that Hydrox was the ripoff cookie. Can you imagine being the original and everybody saying, "Yeah, right, yeah, Hydrox,
4: sure. you just you just ripped off Oreo, <laughs> you skateboarded into a parked car"? How dare you! So we can see that sometimes history doesn't tell the truest tale. And like I said, with Ant Man getting his own multi-million-dollar pair of movies now, and sure to be more, whereas the Atom, which was the first one, is yeah, really right going to Cole. television,
3: yeah, right.
4: So, history may not be kind, and we're going to do a bit of a taste test of our own now to see if you can recognize, Jeffrey, the original or the ripoff when it comes to music. All right, Cole, I'm ready. The reason we're talking about this today is because of Marvin Gaye, and so I'm going to give him just a little bit more airtime to show off how many people may have ripped him off. This is Marvin Gaye Gotta Give It Up. I know where you're going with this. And this sounds very similar to maybe. Everybody get up. A newer song.
3: So this is coming from the great TV's Alan Thick's son, Robin Thick. Correct. And I believe he
4: did and this Pharrell. Pharrell and, and T. T I mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. Wow, but Marvin I cannot... Marvin
4: Gaye estate has been suing a few people in recent years, but which one's the original, Jeff? Oh, Marvin Gaye, for sure. All right. See, Now, now we're going to get harder after that. Haven't
3: you heard that imitation is the greatest form of flattery? And like it's sincere
4: form. Shouldn't he be flattered? Maybe he's flattered all the way to the bank. There we go. Yeah. It's, it's a little bit about money in this business. <laughs> all right. But this one's a little harder. One you'll recognize, one you won't, but which one is the original? Ooh.
3: Stairway to heaven.
4: Correct. Okay.
3: Wow. That's definitely ripped off. And it sounds like somebody needs to tune their guitar.
4: That's possible. And it's not Zeppelin. (laughs) But this is the band Spirit with Taurus.
3: Okay. That
4: came first, (gasps) Jeff. Are you kidding me? Led Zeppelin ripped off this song.
3: Wow. But the Led Zeppelin song is much better.
4: Eh, Much more popular. Ooh. (laughs) Zeppelin's also been accused of ripping off a few things from classic blues legends as well. Okay. Um, But this one you can hear. Interesting. All Hmm. right. So you're one and one. Okay. Okay. Not let's, too bad. Let's try another one. Let's let's go back a little bit. It's not Chuck Berry, is it? This is Chuck okay. Berry. Sweet load of 16 is the name of the song. Which sounds very similar to... Of course. Beach Boys. Surfing Everybody USA. Correct. USA.
3: Featured prominently in the 80s film Teen Wolf. Of course. When they're surfing on their van.
4: That is what it's truly known for, I believe. Okay.
3: <laughs> Which one came first? Oh, it's got to be Chuck Berry. I believe Chuck
4: Berry uh, predated the Beach Boys. He did. And so that might be a key for you. If you can name who's doing it, it might help you out. Sure, yeah. So let's go to uh, another popular band. I don't know if you're familiar with this song.
3: Uh, yes. Yes. I know Weird Al did a version of this song, but it's not Weird Al.
4: Oh, who is that? It's all right. I'll let you. So who is, is the it, other first one? Of all? Oh no, that would be oh, cheating. you can't tell. Okay. I'm gonna, I'm gonna play the other one. It's a little sped up, but a very similar riff.
3: Was the first one Nirvana? Yes. Okay. Which one came first, Jeffrey? Oh, it's not going to be
4: Nirvana. It's going to be the second one. Correct. The song 80s by The Killing Joke came out in the 80s. And then Nirvana's Come As You Are debuted in 1991. Did
3: did they steal The Killing Joke from the comic The Killing Joke?
4: In the mid-80s, I believe that band came first. So it was actually Batman that ripped off this band's name. You're right. Okay. I'm doing pretty well. You're two out of three. Yes. Which is okay. Yeah. All right. You're a movie fan. and yes. So I knew that you would enjoy this one. Ray Parker Jr.
3: Ghostbusters. When there's something strange in the name of I want a new drug. Huey Lewis and the News is the original for sure.
4: It absolutely is. And this one has a movie related story around it. The people in Ghostbusters, the people making the movie Ghostbusters, reached out to Huey and said, Would you like to make a real cool song for our new uh, Bill Murray kind of movie? Yeah. And Huey said, Well, I've got this other movie I'm working on by the name of Back to the Future. Sure. But get back to me. They didn't get back to him, and they just copied a riff from a song that he had just put out, let Ray Parker Jr. take care of things, and Ghostbusters became much more popular, even though it was a one-hit wonder. Huey Lewis and the News, still a very popular band, but I want a new drug. I was playing it, actually, when I was giving my roommate a ride the other day, and he said, (laughs) this sounds like Ghostbusters, and I said, no, Ghostbusters
3: sounds like this. Good for you, Cole. I would say it's unforgivable, but Ghostbusters is such a great song. It really is, and Weird Al featured prominently in our discussion again because he did a, a version of this song called "I Want a New Duck," but he got permission from Huey Lewis, as and he news. often
4: does in his version of ripping things off. He, he will does it the right way.
3: He will uh, if he does not get permission, he will not do the song. There are a couple of notable exceptions to that rule but he's very courteous
4: and he doesn't make money off them. sometimes he'll play them for fun in his concerts but he doesn't release them properly if he didn't get permission
3: sure it used to be you knew that you made it in your career if you were asked to be a guest on the Simpsons in music you know you've made it in your career if Weird Al is contacting you to parody your song there you go wow I know my stuff I guess
4: all different kinds of rip-offs and my, you did very well Jeffrey my
3: dad would be so proud well, there you have it, folks. If you're going to rip somebody off, and you probably shouldn't, but if you feel like you you are trying to flatter somebody, you're trying to pay homage to them, make sure to get the permission. Well, there you have it, our discussion on ripoffs and sampling. When we return, we're going to continue the fun here on Screen Cleaning. We'll be right back. Uh That is our silver lining cinema stinger. We're going to be doing that here in just a minute. But uh, first I want to tell you about a production company. Sometimes success can come from riding the coattails of others. I'm sure we've all kind of experienced that a little bit in our lives. That certainly seems to be the case for The Asylum, an independent film company and distributor that produces low budget direct to video films, most of which you'll probably see at the red box when you go to rent a movie. Many of the company's films capitalize on productions by major studios often using film titles and scripts very similar to current blockbusters in order to lure customers. And uh, these titles have been dubbed mockbusters. So they've actually gotten into trouble over the years. They've been around for a little while. Gee, I wonder why. Yeah, I know that... uh, they came out with a Hobbit film that they got in trouble for, and they have a lot of other films that are very similar well, yeah. to Do others. we want to go
4: through some of these just to see if they remind you of any particular film? Snakes on a Train, I know, is one of them. Abraham Lincoln vs. Zombies. Okay. The Fast and the Fierce. I don't, I don't okay. know what that's trying to get imagination going hmm. for. Atlantic Rim sounds vaguely Rim. familiar okay. to something. Yeah.
3: yeah. Anyway... So Cole and I thought it would be interesting to each watch one of these films. He watched a different one than I did. And to give a positive review of them. Because, you know, some people might look at these films and say, oh, they're so bad that they have to go direct to video. They have to rip off other films and there's zero budget on these things. But come on, there's got to be some good to be found in these films. Well, I am going to review the film Cargo. Which, uh, you know, might, some, somebody might look at this and think, oh, that's just a ripoff of Cars 3. Come on. It did come out this year, as did Cars 3. Cargo tells the story of Danny, a teenaged car who's struggling to deal with the mounting peer pressure at school, as well as pressure from his dad at home. His dad wants him to follow in his footsteps and become a mechanic. And Danny's rebelliousness leads to his father being shipped off to Clunker Island, which is a place where old, beat-up cars get sent to, uh, to be repurposed as junk metal. And so Danny has to rescue his father from Clunker Island. Let's talk about the voice cast in this film first. You've got Ed Asner, who did a Pixar movie. He was also, you know, on the Mary Tyler Moore show. Everybody knows Ed Asner. Everybody loves Ed Asner. He plays the father. There's Melissa Joan Hart of Clarissa Explains It All fame, as well as Sabrina the Teenage Witch fame, as well as a handful of other ABC Family shows she's done with Joey Lawrence. Uh, They've been a pretty good pair. It's like Judy Garland and, and Mickey Rooney, as well as Haley Joel Osment, the Oscar nominated actor of The Sixth Sense, who plays Danny, the rebellious he kind of has a hard time. He doesn't know who he wants to be. Here's another plus. It's a musical. Now, this is something Can't I felt... go wrong with a musical. Yeah, I felt this was really missing from any of the Cars films, was, come on, where's the music? I want to see these cars singing and dancing. You know, uh, it's not enough for me to just see them acting like humans. Uh, there are songs like... Um, there's a, there's a rap song. There's a Cargo theme song. There's a song that Danny sings called I'm Just a Teenage Car. So, yeah, that would have been nice in the Cars movies. Well, we got them here in Cargo. It's jam-packed, and I mean jam-packed, from front bumper to back bumper with car puns. One of the characters' names – listen to these names. Vincent Diesel, Greta Carbo, Sean Carnery – Don Carleone, La Carcinostra, Art Carbuncle, Cabigail, and Carlotta. I'm sure there were more, but those are just the ones that I was able to write down. Uh, another problem with the Cars franchise is the flashiness. You know, they're trying to be super fast, and it's a lot of noise, a lot of movement, which can be upsetting to a lot of kids and a little off-putting. This film has little as little movement as possible. There are multiple chase scenes. But they're all slow speed scenes. I don't know. I'm not trying to say that that's them trying to save a few bucks on the animation, which is very expensive. Of course not. I think they were more worried about the kids. Plus a lot of bang for your buck. Most people would probably look at this and think that they could have made it into a 45-minute film or a 60-minute film. No. The filmmakers blessed us with 90 minutes. They're cargo. doing it for
4: you, Jeff. The best bang for your buck. A buck 50 at the Redbox. There you go. <laughs> That's cargo. And the asylum film that I chose to watch yes. is called Planet of the Sharks. Really? Now, right from the get-go, this movie has uh, something wonderful going for it, because it doesn't just lean on the franchise of Planet of the Apes. Okay. That's kind of the image that it's trying to induce with you. But after after a couple subtle homages uh, within the first couple scenes, just like War of the Planet of the Apes did, and I saw that a couple weeks ago as well, they really decide to just clear themselves from that Planet of the title. And go in an entirely different direction Good to give you something them. new. So That's great. if it's what you expected, they're subverting expectations, which is something I always look for in a movie. Absolutely. Planet of the Sharks has to deal with a far distant future where the polar ice caps have melted. This is a this is really an ecological warning film yes. that after the polar ice caps melt, everything on Earth floods and society is left to just a couple peer looking, boat looking societies that are are separated from one another by just large swashes of water. Okay. And the the kind of societies that that are built up there are just full of uh, eclectic individuals covering <laughs> all good word all sorts yeah. of all sorts of people and, and places. There's one girl that does just a spot on Cajun accent that will really th- make you feel that you're back in New Orleans. Wow.
3: So, would you, I don't want to ask you if you would recommend it, but, uh, did it Did it have
4: you on the edge of your seat? Edge of my seat for the whole ride. The Sharks are are beautiful. And, and again, I'm hoping that this will fit into the other Asylum creation and franchise, maybe the Sharknado cinematic universe, that, that someday the Sharknado films, the, the Sharknado will take up so much that it will actually flood the earth and lead to the world we see in Planet of the Sharks.
3: You know, I did notice this as I was rifling through all the different titles from the Asylum is that. The Sharknado uh, franchise has done so well that the Asylum is basically parodying themselves with all these Sharknado ripoffs.
4: It's true. There are five Sharknado films now and two Planet of the Shark films with upcoming this year Empire of the Sharks that I won't be missing. Interesting.
3: Well – You can find them at your local Redbox that you can't miss them. Just look for a familiar title that's just slightly off, and you'll know it's an asylum film. When we return, I'm actually going to be uh, sharing our Panning for Good segment with you. And it involves another children's movie. This one you're definitely not going to want to miss. And uh, you can find it right on Netflix. This is Screen Cleaning. There's good in them there, hills.
2: <laughs>
3: Cole, I am super sad because I feel like 2018 has been a really weak year for kids' movies. There have only been a handful that have had a major release, and of those that have had a major release, only Paddington 2 and Incredibles 2, in my opinion, were the, the ones that were worth seeing. So, during this unforgivably slow season, I thought I'd recommend a kid's film that would be worthy of your time and that you might not know about, but that you can find on Netflix. It's called The Little Prince. Now, you've probably heard of the French book. It's one of the best-selling books of all time. The movie tells the story of a little girl who is being prepared for adulthood by her mother and all of the serious things that come with that uh, however, she sh- she soon strikes up a friendship with her eccentric elderly neighbor, who shares with her the extraordinary and fanciful stories of the Little Prince, and the time that they spend together begins to change the way she views the world. Now, its themes are very similar to J.M. Barry's Peter Pan. It's it's difficult to watch this movie and not think of Peter Pan. You know that whole "don't grow up" theme that can be gleaned from this. Uh, The 2016 film was mysteriously never released theatrically, uh, but it did garner critical acclaim and it boasts an impressive voice cast. It's got Jeff Bridges, Rachel McAdams, Albert Brooks and Ant-Man himself, Paul Redd. It is breathtakingly beautiful to look at, and the songs by French singer Camille are whimsical. You can actually uh, go to Amazon Prime if you're a member and listen to the soundtrack for free. My girls consistently request this film, which has always surprised me because it does have some heavier topics for children. Uh, But like the book's film, the appeal seems to be universal. And it serves as a good reminder that there is value in remaining a kid, at least at heart. So that's going to do it for this week. Join us next week for another exciting show. We're here every Friday to shine a big old spotlight on all that is good in entertainment. This is Screen Cleaning. BYU Sports Nation is up next here on BYU Radio.